0: Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. This is the seventh show in our ICE series. Uh, in order to understand the series, I urge you to listen to the first show online in the public archives of WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows dated two twenty eight twenty three isolation, control, and elimination. This series is dedicated to the Wabanaki people in Maine to help them understand the history of Wabanaki state relations. We have read every word of the three transcripts on the air and have discussed the implications. This show is the final show in our ICE series. We will review the 1942 transcripts and their shocking revelations of the state's long-term strategy to Eliminate the Tribes. Our guests today uh, are one of my co-authors of One Nation Under Fraud or Remonstrance, Judge Eric Menert, uh, Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court. Uh, professor Harold Prince, a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and emeritus at the University of Kansas. Professor Dan Ranko is a member of the Penobscot Nation and professor of anthropology and chair of Native American Studies at the University of Maine. We have a special guest today, uh, law professor and attorney Rebecca Soze, uh, is a regents professor at the James E. Rogers College of Law at the University of Arizona. Uh, professor Sozi, who is a uh, Yaki, of Yaqui descent, is a faculty member of the Indigenous People's Law and Policy Program at the University of Arizona. And she is widely known for her work in the fields of federal Indian law and indigenous people's human rights. She has published widely on sovereignty, self-determination, cultural pluralism, environmental policy and cultural rights. She teaches in the areas of federal Indian law, property, constitutional law, critical race theory and cultural resources law. She is a member of the uh, Arizona Bar Association and the California Bar Association. Professor Sozi serves as a Supreme Court Justice for the Fort McDowell uh, Yavapi Nation and as an associate judge on the San Carlos Tribal Court of Appeals. Uh, we're honored to have you here with us, Rebecca, and thank you for agreeing to be on the show.
1: Thank you, Donna.
0: Welcome, everyone. And uh, we'll be discussing our views on what's been covered so far uh, on these transcripts and um, it's sort of like our final uh, thoughts on, on everything that we've, that we've read. So I'm going to ask Darren to uh, open the conversation by telling us what he thought was uh, important in this. Darren.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Donna. And just wonderful to be joining you all again today. And, uh, so so glad that uh, Rebecca is joining us. Uh, uh, as she knows, I've been a big fan of her work for so many years, longer than probably any of us want to remember. And uh, yeah, I just think in terms of this, of these readings that uh, we've participated in in the ice and sort of the revelations that um, kind of come with a close reading of some uh, of documents that happened in the 1940s, you know, of these hearings and of this like, kind of whole approach is just... What really strikes me is how purposeful this sort of long-term strategic planning is, like just sort of in, in the 1940s, just how specific and how deliberate the state's position was in getting rid of us, like just so absolutely deliberate. You see this in, again and again, you know you could you could say like there are sort of softer and harder versions of getting rid of us like so there's like you know things like they're planning to get control of over how membership is 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 done right so it's sort of like imposing Laws like we see in Canada, out marriage uh, laws that, you know, where people would lose membership or citizenship in one of our tribes, you know, you see that planning. And and actually, it's one of the instances that struck me around that one was, they had already kind of you know, framed up the, the, the Canadian version, which was, was only women out marrying, losing status and their children. But they actually, I, I'll give it to the state of Maine, they were contemplating it in, in equitably that uh, out marriage by men as well would also be <laughs> lose status. So bully for them for the. Uh, lack of uh, commitment to paternalism on that side of it so I think there are those sort of we'll we'll call we'll call those um my apologies those softer versions of it and then the, the ones that are much more about uh sort of ongoing resource grabs right where they're like we'll sell off the reservation we'll sell the we'll sell the lands or to the neighboring towns and sort of force people almost like the implication of some of those policy recommendations, like almost forcing us out of the homes that we have had uh, on on reservation communities, like so, just sort of that those sorts of of things, yeah, I guess just that overall sort of paternalistic um, framework of, uh, on the one hand, uh, early on we had one of those uh, one of the people um, doing the the reportage, like the the actual writing. I don't know if it wasn't Proctor, it was um, someone else, but the, the idea that, oh, I started to look at that, but that got too too dicey, sort of just how, how much we've mismanaged their lands and how much we've lost. Like I could only go into it so far. And then he's like, I just didn't want to go any further. So there's, on the one hand, there's that, like we don't want to know how bad we've actually created, you know, how much of the badness we've created in this situation. Uh, on the one hand, and then you have all these discussions on the other, where they're trying to settle disputes from the past by basically saying like, oh, well, you know, these lands were probably taken, you know, at this cost that so long ago, and they'll be like, we'll just assume like this was like a no interest loan for 80 years by the tribes to the state, you know, like, somehow, like, we, you know, not even asking us or not even consulting us, just sort of assuming that, you know, the lost funds were kind of, Uh, assumed to be no interest loans Uh, so that's on the one hand and on the other hand also saying like well obviously in in terms of the kinds of resources or sources we've we've funded right they keep talking about this ongoing administrative bloat and funding they have for the Indians like how they way overestimate that like in terms of you know into perpetuity and it's going to be this like ongoing burden on the state so it's like we get to be like our largest as Native people who are being treated as wards was, we just happened to give the state no interest loans for 80, 100 years. And then the, on the other hand, they're just like, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, assume this to be you know an ongoing burden for the state coffers in, into perpetuity. And that's why we need to get out of the Indian business, right? So those levels of paternalism all along, you know and I think it's striking from a 21st century perspective that these hearings and this the, the contemplation just includes no Native people whatsoever as well. I mean, that's, that's a little bit striking. I mean, part of it is, if you think about it, it's textual now, right? We're reading the text from the hearings, but it is quite clear they didn't want, you know, it would, it it would be unimaginable for this policy discussion. I'm not saying we we necessarily have had better results in the last 20 years, but the idea that there's just no Native people articulating, Wabanaki people articulating what we actually want with our future. uh, And just this assumption around that the goal of these hearings is assimilation, eradicate, I mean, the ICE acronym works perfectly, but that it is perfectly kind of set up in these ways. So I think for me, those are kind of some of the, jumping off points that I think are really um, um, remarkable in, in what we've read over these last uh, six or seven shows.
0: Harold?
3: Yeah, the um, overall uh, impression I have of our discussions over the last um, many months, actually, uh, once a month we have had these meetings and discussions and we have these conversations about uh, old texts and... Uh, to me, uh, what does not strike, uh, strike me is dates, numbers, names, but the underlying structures. Uh, I'm much more interested in the revelation of the underlying structures that somehow um, become revealed at uh, certain kind of junctures. And so the structures um, are fundamentally uh, of asymmetry, number one, the asymmetrical relationship between the state and the tribes, uh, whereby the state is arrogating all kinds of powers that are themselves disputed with the federal government. So there's a tension on the one hand between the powers of the state and the federal government. And then uh, on the other hand, between the state and the tribes. And then ultimately, of course, also between the tribes and the federal government. There's a triangle, if you will. And in that arena, that triangle, there's a contestation about rights that uh, somehow can collectively be collapsed under the heading of sovereignty. Uh, The term sovereignty has repeatedly come back. Uh, It's good for our audience uh, on the show uh, to know that this is actually a term that comes from Latin, like many words in the English language. And actually has uh, inherent in it is the idea of super, supra, so who or what actually has a right that supersedes those of others. And you see, that very interesting that we have in uh, Maine, uh, but also in the other um, thirteen, uh, the thirteen original colonies, is the um, well-known uh, but not well-understood right of preemption. And so here, early on, you see the preemptive right that is disputed. Uh, whether it's the federal government uh, or the sovereign before the time in England, Great Britain, I should say, whether um, the king or the monarch has a sovereign right or whether the Massachusetts colony, for example, has sovereign rights in terms of dealing with the tribes within its jurisdiction or its claimed area. And you see that not just popping up uh, in... um, 1784, when the first attempt is made uh, by Henry Knox uh, and uh, General Benjamin Lincoln uh, to make a treaty with the Penobscot uh, Nation uh, right after um, the um, Treaty of Paris that uh, granted uh, international recognition of the United States as an independent country. Uh, But that comes back again in 1786 and again in an attempt in 1788. And then you see suddenly, of course, a watershed change has happened on the federal level, namely the United States has adopted its constitution, it was ratified in 1789, and then you get, of course, the election of the first president, uh, also in 1789, and that's immediately followed by the non-intercourse of 1790, which is precisely about that issue about whether uh, a state uh, has a right to make a treaty or whether that treaty is reserved to the federal government. And so it's a very interesting um, contestation that uh, goes back all the way to the founding of uh, the, the Puritan Commonwealth, uh, whereby repeatedly, um, Massachusetts has asserted rights against the monarch um, in, uh, in uh, Great Britain. And so, uh, so the, the, the contestation about who has jurisdiction, who has sovereign rights, uh, is so old in um, on the Eastern seaboard that people now have forgotten the deep roots. And the reason I bring this up, uh, just to wrap this up, uh, my comment at least, is that all these um, lawyers and these legislators and these journalists who are writing and commenting on these issues, they are really not aware of the cultural bedrock within which they operate, that hegemonic system that makes them think in a certain kind of way, that, that makes them uh, vote in a certain kind of way, precludes almost any other alternative. And so the importance of critical theory, and I'm not referring here to critical race theory, I'm talking about critical theory as is well um, uh, developed in Europe uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. And I'm thinking here about people like Lukács, uh, Gramsci, and many others. That critical theory is essential for anyone who tries to understand the sovereignty dispute uh, that's currently going on in Indian country, namely the the fight by indigenous peoples against a hegemonic mindset that is um, embedded in the thinking of the legislators and and of the public in general. And so it's a perpetual act of um, teaching by, for example, your show Donna, also, I'm aware of um, uh, Professor Tsozi, uh, her challenge in, the, in Arizona, uh, which has its own set of problems, how do you train a future group of lawyers to not fall into the trap of that asymmetrical um, um, thinking about the world as if that is normal or as if that is God-given or as if that is natural. None of the above is true. These are all human constructs, and we have an opportunity uh, to reset uh, some of the boundaries, some of the confines of these constructions.
4: Eric? As I looked at this, I reflected on, um, it's too easy for those of us living in Maine in, in 2023, to see the the actions of the past as unenlightened behavior um, that really doesn't have any ramifications in the world today. And yet when we review the state's actions, we can see that even today, the actions that the, uh, the state has taken with regards to legislation put forward before it on tribal sovereignty is driven by the policy initiatives that have been around the state of Maine since its founding. And those policy initiatives are rooted in in the policy that you've discussed, Donna, which is that uh, isolation control and elimination. You know, they, over and over again, uh, what we hear from the state is, when it comes to tribal sovereignty. Oh, no nation within a nation. Those were the words used by Andrew Jackson. Um, That's not somebody that you wanna be looking at when you're starting to talk about how do you have um, a collaborative tribal state relations. But I I look at that ICE plan, that ICE strategy, and what I see in it is, that it's a policy that is driven by economic piracy and um, genocide. And that there are resources that the tribal community had in the state of Maine, and it starts with land. And first they take the land. Then it starts with funds that the tribes have and they take the funds, uh, the classic one that strikes me and that comes to mind, is a whole town of Eastport where the legislature says, oh, yes, we're going to invest in the town of Eastport bonds, and we're going to use tribal money to do that. Oh, well, they went to Funk. sorry, tribe, we, we've used your money to support the town of Eastport, get a better water system, but you, not so much. And, and from a legal perspective, I sit here and go, first off, the, the state is an outlaw state. In my mind, because it completely violated the Non-Intercourse Act. It, it uh, Non-Intercourse said the act wouldn't allow the states to take the land, um, and yet they continue to do that throughout um, the the tribes' experience with them. And as part of that, um, the state has has justified its position by pseudo-legal cases and um, pseudo legislative legislative investigation. If that's what we're going to call the Proctor Report, where they said, oh, we're going to investigate this. I, I don't see that as... Uh, and especially when the report when you review the transcript and then you see what comes out of the the in the report nowhere in the report does it talk about when the attorney general and i think uh professor ranko referred to this professor ranko said oh yeah they they in the report they they totally ignore when the attorney general says yeah i looked at what i thought we might owe the tribes and um i got to about a million dollars and thought oh, well he says, and I, I, it was too troubling. So I closed that door and he was asked, how much do you think we owe over a million dollars? Oh, yeah. Well over a $1 million dollars. 1942, over a $1 million dollars that they owed them the tribes. And they just closed the door. And nowhere in the report uh, do they do anything but, as, as Professor Rank will say, make a passing reference to that and say, well, you know, we think we gave them a lot of money. Um, so, uh we don't we we we'll just call that even. We we may have owed them the million dollars, but we gave them the money. And I think the real irony of that is as you dig deeper into what they were doing, is they were taking money that they they were being generated by selling tribal assets, timber, and the rest, and giving it back to the tribe and saying, There, yeah, we we gave them the money. No, you didn't give them anything. You utilize their resources to give them money and um, And then claim that you were doing the right thing. And and from a legal perspective, the concept of fiduciary duty um, is particularly troubling to me. What what the federal government has done when it entered into that treaty relationship with tribes has assumed a certain fiduciary responsibility to the tribe, particularly when it comes to the management of resources. Um, And... The idea that if the state of Maine has said, and it did say for years and years and years, that the feds didn't have a responsibility, that the, the tribes were, uh, and I believe there was actually, yeah, they were, there were Maine, Maine Indian agents, the, that there was no federal government relationship with the tribes in Maine. They were all governed by a tribal state relationship. The breach of that tribal state relationship, the magnitude of the breach of that tribal state relationship um, in the review of the testimony and the, uh, particularly the testimony, not so much the report because the report tries to gloss over a number of things, but in the testimony is, is um, monstrous. I think the other thing that particularly was uh, problematic as I looked at it and I, that was the economic piracy the the other challenge in, or, uh, concern was the state's uh, attempt to eradicate the tribes within the state. And, it, you know, it started with the the bounty being put on the scalps of uh, men, women, and children. And it continued through as a uh, as Professor Rankin said, softer means, but still attempting to uh, assimilate the tribes by a number of means. Uh, one was, uh, they were going to, the state was trying to define who was an Indian uh, and they went into the blood quantum. And and they actually did the calculations out saying, yeah, if we do this, we should be able to have no Indians left by, uh, and I think, Donna, you calculated by 2043 is what I think they said, that that there would be no... Of bloods left in the tribe by then and therefore there would be no tribe and the tribal lands could be taken over by the neighboring towns um those kind of plans still the the reverberations of those plans today in tribal state relations um, really really are something that have to be examined by the state if there is going to be true movement forward in in the relations between the tribes and the state from my perspective.
1: Rebecca? Thank you so much. I'm, I'm truly fascinated to hear the accounts, the historical accounts of the transcripts, and I really appreciate that you have done this series, Donna, Um, and my colleagues who are on this call are very, very well versed in the history and cultures and and relationships between the state of Maine and the the nations. Um, So I'm going to comment as an outsider. Um, I'm coming from Arizona, and I think that there's a, um, a doctrine of federal Indian law that We teach in law school and we become almost comfortable with the idea of things like the trust responsibility of the federal government to federally recognize native nations. We get comfortable with the idea of tribal sovereignty as belonging to federally recognized Indian nations. Um, We get used to the idea of treaties being nation to nation, the United States, and again, federally recognized Indian nations. And this history that you have brought to light is, is very perplexing because here's a history where the state is imposing itself in that role of the federal government without any consistency in federal Indian law, and yet this has had a market effect and still has an effect on the relationship of the nations, but now you have federal, state and tribal nations in a mix of trying to understand what sovereignty and rights mean today. So it's a very complex world that you've introduced us to. And so if I I could just break it down into a couple of things, Um, Professor Prince mentioned theory, what theory do we use to even understand this? And I also teach US constitutional law. So my students are used to US constitutional law, and they're used to European derived concepts of jurisprudence that define the relationship between sovereign entities and rights holders. And in that structure, there's a social contract. And The contract is between the government and its citizens and yet at the time of so called European discovery native peoples were not part of that social contract and they never. became part of the social contract, even after citizenship, so what norms what jurisprudential norms govern justice between nations. And that's something that I really push my students to think about. Professor Renko's work on um, in terms of, of looking at Penobscot, you know, norms of, of justice, I think is really an important conversation. That of course, doesn't even exist in transcripts, because somehow this group of, of men found that they didn't even need to look at that they assume that there is a principle of justice that governs. And so I would ask every single person who's listening to your series, what is the principle of justice? It's not found in the social contract. The way that I heard those men describing it, there were different categories of rights. And they said that Native people, Indian people, they said, are comfortable with this idea of award. They want to be ward. What's the alternative? Those men said the alternative is a pauper. What's a pauper? A pauper is a person with no resources, somebody who the state has to take care of, even to the point of when that person dies, they, the state takes over their burial, they have no next of kin. Where is this concept of pauper and Indian and ward coming from? And when I listened to the, the, the transcripts, it seemed to me that they were saying, look, we have the duty to protect. These Indian people from white people who would want to go and live with them and take advantage of our services as a state giving sustenance and all of these things, we have to protect them from that. So these marriage laws, these these laws against marrying out to preserve what they viewed as a pure Indian race. And then they were willing to maybe go down to half blood but i saw them get very very shaky when it got to quarter blood and certainly beyond that those were in fact not going to be indians anymore so their duty was to preserve that race for the time frame that it made sense to treat them as a ward that means that if in fact they were not culturally assimilated. And I think that's where this idea of eventually they're gonna miscegenate and they're gonna become culturally just like white people and they'll become white blood. And so they're gonna become white people. That was the thinking. But for the time being, the people who they viewed as Indian had a certain character and the character that went along with Ward for them was somebody who lives in their community does arts and crafts types of things that are consistent with the Indian and allows themselves to be cared for by a paternalistic white overseer who takes care of them. Where did that come from? And I think that in my view, and I would love to hear the, the comments of, of the other um the other folks on this on the show, but in my view, that was a fiction that was created to dehumanize Native people into where you didn't have to respect any of their rights as long as you were exercising this fostering duty of protection. It's in the European philosophers, Locke, Hobbes, it's in their writings, this very stripped down version of a person who is the ward who has to be cared for. That's what these men were attempting to paint. And that same thing happened in countries throughout the world. Um, In fact, if you look at the first human rights instruments that were designed to protect the rights of indigenous people, ILO, International Labor Organization, um, did a a document for the nation states, and I think it was 1959 or so. It really is about the ward. It's about this person that doesn't doesn't have the same ability to protect themselves as other citizens. Therefore they get exploited in the labor market. Therefore the nation states have to take care of them. That was indigenous peoples in the 1950s. And these transfers of course are a little bit earlier, but you can find that red. So what does that do? It says today we have to be very mindful of the framing that we are giving to indigenous rights, and that's where, in my view, human rights law is a better template than constitutional law. There's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that protects the rights of native people. There is the Commerce Clause that says Congress has the sole and exclusive power to regulate commerce with the Indian nations among the several states, and and you know, with with Indian tribes among the several states, the commerce clause with foreign nations among the several states and with Indian tribes sets them apart as a government under this congressional authority. Therefore the state should not have been dealing with them. Therefore the trade and intercourse act of 1790 post should have protected them. So this is something that that we really need to get a handle on, but the US constitution does not protect native rights. So where does that protection come from? It comes from the inherent right of autonomy, of self-determination that exists in every indigenous people as a people. That is a framing, that is a moral right, that is a political right, and that is a legal right in the United States. There is still a very robust discourse over what the rights of American Indian and Alaska Native nations is. And so can the state recognize tribes? There's some 400 states that are claiming that they have some form of state recognition, not federal recognition yet. Do they have equal rights? Should they have equal rights to federally recognized tribes? Your history is laying all of that out for us to think about. And I don't wanna you know, overstep the time. So we'll just end with this idea. People in the human rights framing go with territory. The territories of native peoples in some cases are overlapping the relationships between native nations in certain regions are overlapping, but they are governed by indigenous framing of that that status and relationship. Um, That is gonna be a vastly different world than the framing that is used under the US Constitution and certainly by these men who had the arrogance to pretend that they could construct that world.
2: Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll just uh, follow this, Darren again, and uh, thanks, thanks so much, Rebecca, for for that. Uh, and 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 it definitely has me, as you mentioned, the constitutional pieces. Um, and uh, before we came on the call, Donna was already teasing me about uh, the, some of the language that I focus on in the state constitution. Um, but, but I, I'll put it in the broader context in terms of just the constitutional arrangement um, that the state of Maine set up in 1820 um, in a general sense uh, it, it reveals um, some of the same tensions and 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 um, paternalisms and uh, the wardship and and second classness of of the arrangement right from the beginning in 1820 as state as the state um, came, came into being um mean the first f- first of all is in in the uh section on electors meaning who can vote um we were grouped as indians uh with with uh other folks who couldn't vote <laughs> we were we were not um uh, assumed to have we, we were assumed you know right next right next to poppers uh actually in the in the listing of people uh who couldn't vote um, was uh, us uh, Indians, Indians not taxed is how we're identified. And, and that, that had a particular kind of valence and meaning um, on the one hand a- and sort of wh- while I- I've made the argument that that is a form of recognition of our sovereignty, we don't identify simply as a, as a race, but as a race of people um, from those writing it, in a certain condition of of taxation which which is is or is represents sort of our our uh, involvement in the political process and 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 contemplates i think uh that we have our own uh that we are separate in in some ways um and then the other part uh the other major part of the constitution where we're referenced and this is uh you know up to the minute um uh politics discussion where we have um Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll have an opportunity to restore sections of the state constitution that recognize uh, the treaty obligations that the state of Maine agreed to uh, take over from the state of Massachusetts, as it came into being, um, that have been hidden from printing since the 1870s. um, And we will uh, have an opportunity to vote on question six, just you know to restore the the the, the language that that the, the state of maine agreed to these treaty obligations uh in the in the second instance so you have um and and the idea that they were removed from printing in the 1870s as a kind of you know washing away of even the modicum of <laughs> of responsibilities that the state had and how that represents that um, you know, uh, is is quite quite alarming. So I think, you know, on I think the the tension between those two things, right? Somehow there were these treaty obligations um, that the state quickly wanted to exit, while at the same time putting us in this sort of wardship uh, status, right? Reveals the, the 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 design from from day one, um, and you know, I think again, what's somewhat remarkable is that for you know from day one, we'll say you know, from 1820 until the nineteen forties, like the consistency with which the state pursued this um form of eradication uh and 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 attempts to um use our resources in various ways against us, uh as as uh as Judge Maynard uh, mentioned. And then sort of just this overall kind of um you know, assumption that they had uh, the ability or the right to say how how we should be. Uh, you know, like these are people who uh, supposedly, and, and I would say, you know, um, continue to the current day, uh, politicians and, and, and lawyers who supposedly um, support the idea of freedom um, and the idea of liberty, um, while at the same time supporting the system that was based upon wardship and our, uh, a lack of freedom, a lack of, uh, uh, of us dictating our own futures, um, and just them not getting the connection between their hypocrisies around these, these ideas around liberty, uh, and, and, uh, the ability of the wardship says. I'll just say also, um, there's also a question on on the on the state ballot about, it, uh, about um, uh, moving a, another category of person uh, out of the the exempted electors schedule into uh, into uh, people who can vote, and that's and that's uh, people under guardianship who, because of mental illness, that um, that is actually also on our ballot. And I mean that shows. You know, a great step forward, in my opinion, that we are about the freedom of and dignity of all people. Um, but it, again, why is it taking us to twenty twenty three to to have basic human rights for the those under guardianship? I mean, this is like this is clearly a, a failing. Uh, and and when I put that alongside even the, the the most sort of basic understanding of our rights as indigenous people. It it really is um, remarkable uh, to to think about. So I'll stop there for now.
3: Harold, I was kind of thinking the irony is, of course, when we talk about the state of Maine uh, since eighteen twenty, that the first one hundred years of its existence as a entity uh, called the state, that uh, women of any race or class had no voting rights. Uh, that didn't come until about nineteen twenty, and so. Uh, it's it's easy to forget that when we begin to focus on one particular group, that uh, the problem is actually systemic. Uh, it's not just necessarily one particular group, it's it's systemic. And if I look at European history, I was just uh, interested in the Allotment uh, Act, uh, the Dawes Act, uh, when uh, collective tribal territories are being divvied up. Um, in the 1840s till 1870s, in my own village uh, in the northern Netherlands, the so called markegronden um, were uh, subdivided into private property because of the argument was that communal land uh, was uh, detrimental to development. So the so called um, investment. Uh, in, by people into the development of peat lands, for example, the draining of the marshlands, uh, that that would not happen because of the um, several concepts of the image of the limited good. In other words, it was a finite series of sources uh, and resources available for people. And therefore, if somebody took more, the others would have less. Uh, but at the same time, uh, this comes at a time of um, a... Uh, the rise of capitalism capitalism of course has its roots much earlier in the um in the 15th century uh, 16th century uh, in terms of how we define capitalism there's a lot of debate about it i don't want to get into that but we do know that in the 19th century we are at the height of capitalism as it has spread already across the globe and that whole attitude and again to professor sosi's point about ilo the in the International Labour Organization uh, in Geneva, at the time, if my memory serves me right here, where it was located, where it is located. Um, But workers, um, of course, across the globe have been dispossessed, and not only dispossessed of their resources, but also of their right to vote on political issues. And so the whole human rights issue, how that intersects with native rights issues is extraordinarily rich in terms of uh, material to uh, explore and to see how these systemic dispossession, repression um, and hegemony, how it all uh, comes together in these constructs uh, that we do know with respect to Indian country in terms of internal colonialism. But the internal colonialism comes at the same time as, as the system of colonialism and colonialism although it officially has largely been ended uh, across the globe uh, after world war ii but the irony is that that did not result in necessarily in a improvement of the lives of millions of people in the so-called decolonized territories, because where new uh, inequalities were exposed and new repressions and so i've always been found, finding it very fascinating how the united states Uh, has made itself a champion of the decolonization in Africa and Asia, uh, but thereby it opened up a corridor by replacing countries like France, England, the Netherlands, Spain and Portugal in particular. It opened up um, imperialism in terms of American businesses being able to uh, take over uh, in terms of of, uh, access to natural resources and markets. And that, of course, we see now today with China, China now making huge inroads uh, into the same territories that the Americans strive to secure after the removal of uh, European colonial powers. Uh, And of course, Russia to a lesser extent. So in other words, to just summarize it, if you look at uh, the struggle of indigenous peoples in North and South and Central America, uh, and you begin to realize that that is a collective struggle of the fourth world, right? the fourth world as a concept of internally colonized nations, whether they are in the first, second, or the third world, these are all becoming rather meaningless concepts nowadays, but they were very, very important. And they begin to see that indeed it, it becomes an issue on the human rights struggle of the right to dignity and the right to a a, a life without um, uh, without suffering, without um, uh, losses. So anyway, we want to leave it at that because this is really terrain for Professor Tsosi. Uh, who has specialized herself into that uh, territory?
4: Eric, <clears throat> and, I, and I, I want to thank Josie for for the conversation on human rights because that hadn't even entered my consciousness as an alternative uh, approach to examining what the state of Maine was doing. For me, it was I was looking at the the conversation in light of the current legislation that's in front of the state. And that's LD two, 2007 and saying, OK, the state and what I see oftentimes in, in uh, the social media and media out there is the individuals who oppose tribal sovereignty sit there and go, uh, the tribes made an agreement. They made a treaty in 1980. And we're not, why should we change it? We're not going to change it. And when I look at that in terms of the historical construct that the tribes made treaties uh, throughout the, the the history of this state, the the issue has been that the state of Maine changes the treaties whenever it feels it's in, in its best interest, and it's in its best interest when it's driven by its economics, and it strikes uh, the the where, and I think. Uh, Professor Ranko was talking about this, where it gets really um, unethical for me is the hypocrisy of saying, we're going to say, here's an agreement that you're supposed to honor. Uh, you're supposed to honor the agreement we made back in 1980, but we're we're going to just push to the side all the agreements that we said we made before. And not only are we pushing them to the side. But we're going to push to aside the responsibilities that we had under those agreements to pay the tribes certain uh, monies under the, the uh, treaties um, to uh, to ensure that that those tribe those monies were taken care of. Those failures to me say why should the tribes uh, accept the argument, and they should not um, that the the treaty from 1980, the Settlement Act is immutable. It's not immutable. The state has never considered the treaties immutable. And uh, it's time to sit down and have a, a conversation. And And I think the, the correct framework to put it in is what Judge Sosi talked about, the human rights framework. That's the correct way to frame this conversation if the, the state truly wants to act in a moral and ethical way. Rebecca?
1: Thank you, Judge Menner. That was very, very, um, very well stated and I completely agree with you. Um, and also uh, Professor Renko's work on the state constitution and what that means. I think that is a dynamic and evolving political environment. It well, probably has the capacity to lead to an even better outcome for native people in your location than it will in locations that are very entrenched in the federal trustee dynamic. The federal trustee dynamic is um, something of comfort right now, but when you look at what the Supreme Court is actually doing to that, for example, in narrowing the definition of waters of the United States so that those tribal interests that are associated with federal interest in protection and natural resources, evaporate in favor of the states. In states with very entrenched federal trust structures, there's this idea that now the state can regulate, they don't have to ask the federal government, they don't have to ask the tribal governments, all bets are off. Whereas in a state like Maine, that has a history of political dealing, has a 1980 Settlement Act that needs revision in the context of a current era Where the federal government is present and the state government is present, that is a better model for self-determination for the Native people because both of those governments have duties, obligations, and they stem from the various historical circumstances. That is the discourse of human rights law, that it is evolving, it is changing, but there's a bedrock and the bedrock is that right of autonomy and self-determination. So all those individual rights that Professor Renko talked about, that um, that Professor Prince talked about in terms of who makes available the labor markets and the conditions of equity for Native nations and their members, and this is the conversation about whether labor laws of the federal government or state governments should affect reservation-based businesses under a self-determination format, it is essential to recognize human rights, but each of those governments has a role to play. So I really see the future of indigenous human rights as putting obligations on every government. And I'm gonna go out on a limb here. I'm gonna say even tribal governments. Um, Professor Prince talked about internal colonialism. And for people who study conditions of classic colonialism, conditions of settler colonialism, and what we now frame as neocolonialism, you will see different versions of this. But the basic idea is that we can become a, socialized into believing that there is this relationship or there is this dependency, and we can enact it on each other. And to the extent that that happens, then the essential morality that's present in indigenous law goes away because the conception of justice is one that is actually taken from the unfairness in those conditions of colonialism. So <laughs> Professor Friends has written much more and elegantly on European theory than I ever will, but I, I am so interested in how that model was enacted in Europe. And even today in Europe, I'm so interested in how European people are viewing their obligations, for example, to the land or to each other across borders. That's what would really be effective here because our watersheds, our forests, our lands, our territories go across these jurisdictional borders and we really have to come together in a sense of of, uh, collaborative sovereignty.
0: Darren?
2: Yeah, no, and I almost want to my my inclination is to uh shift just slightly out of this discussion and and maybe ask the question given all of this structure of wardship and takings and the, all of the things like the that you know um just honor the people the leaders that came before uh the Wabanaki leadership leaders that and 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 community people that have come before that you know we the fact that we are still here um is a testament to leadership um the ability to speak to speak a kind of truth to power to maintain our cultures and communities in the face of all of this you know and and i think in that space of like you know there's a long history of our petitions and our speech making in the legislature there's the the uh the um you know the Lewis mitchell speech in from eighteen eighty seven that you know is is just profound and I kind of wanted to um read some of that just just to kind of recenter us like you know what wh- how and why are we still here and what what is you know, I think justice look like it It's so interesting because i I feel like some of the detractors uh, of our sovereignty are people who would otherwise talk about justice in in a number of other situations. Um, um, And and so this is towards the end of of Lewis Mitchell's speech. uh, And he says, just consider today, how many rich men there are in Callis and St. Stephen, Milltown, Machias, East Machias, Columbia, Cherryfield, and other lumbering towns. We see a good many of them worth thousands and even millions of dollars. We ask ourselves, how do they make most out of their money? Answer is they make it on lumber or timber once owned by the Passamaquoddy Indians. Louis Mitchell was a Passamaquoddy representative to the state legislature. How many of their their privileges have been broken? How many of their lands have been taken from them by authority of the state? Now we say to ourselves, these Indians ought to have everything they asked for. They deserve assistance. We are sent here to help the poor and defend their rights. Now this plainly shows us How much worse a people of 530 souls are, stripped of their whole country, their privileges on which they depend for their living, all the land they claim to own, now being only 10 acres. If one or two men in this body, the state legislature, were Indians, they would fight like braves for their rights. Now look at yourselves and see... Whether I am right or wrong, if you find any insulting language in my speech, I ask your pardon. I don't mean to insult anybody, but simply tell you of our wrong. And so just this idea that, you know, (laughs) I mean, he's not this is captured and very famous, but, you know uh in in the late night in the late 1990s it was donna loring making these speeches you know i mean that's we have to honor that in uh and into early 2000s so i just think like um how do we how do we even begin to kind of speak that truth and rely on our ancestors uh to ensure that our um descendants of the seventh generation have uh, a connection to our homeland um is just so critically important to um, honor that part of this. So as much as I want to dump on the state, I also want to honor some of this work done before us. Uh, that that is, uh, I'll, you know, just the fact that we're still here.
0: Yeah,
3: uh, yeah, I concur. Actually, I was thinking about what uh, Professor Ranko was just uh, saying that when I worked with the Mi'kmaq in northern Maine, uh, which had not at all any recognition, no state recognition or federal recognition or any land, when uh, I arrived in Maine uh, in the wake of the Maine Indian Land Claim Settlement Act. And that was in the fall of 1981. And 10 years later, uh, of course, uh, federal recognition had been granted and, uh, and a land claim had been won. Um, and, but I was thinking not so much about all these men, but I thought about all these women because it was fascinating uh, that the core of the Mi'kmaq community that was always faithfully there in all our brainstorming and sessions that we had the core group was always a group of women they were a group of very important men but these women are often into the background but very strong very persistent and that story uh, is of course written out and um, uh, I gained huge respect uh, for these women actually it was one reason why My wife, Bunny McBride, wrote that uh, book, Women of the Dawn, uh, that Donna and and Darren know about, surely. But it was really that idea about um, Native women that get written out. But in the Indigenous communities that I know of and that all of you know of, uh, and look at Donna Donna Loring herself, uh, of course, as a tribal representative, um, it was these women whose stories have often been submerged behind... Uh, these chiefs that become the orators uh, and become the elected uh, tribal leaders, but so, again, uh, behind it is is a solid group of these um, these uh, com- community leaders, these heads heads of families. Very often, so that's really what I wanted to um, just bring out as a tribute um, to um, the, the 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 voiceless, often in terms of how history is written, because you don't often see them, and yet they were there.
0: So, Eric.
4: I don't have much. I, I was listening as as Dan, Professor Ranko was talking, and I'm reminded of the Martin Luther King quote, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I, um, I hope that the conversation, Donna, that you've initiated around this helps us bend the, the arc towards justice because a grave injustice has been done.
0: Rebecca, last word.
1: I just want to thank um, you, Donna, and each of the wonderful, wonderful colleagues who has presented today um, for the work that you're doing. You know, in in Arizona, there is a movement to trim back on what is a permissible public school education to minimize the exposure today's students would have to these very difficult and ugly histories. And I commend you for making this history known and present to all of the people who are listening to your show. Thank you so much. And this is the best conversation that I have had on contemporary issues and justice in a long time. I'm so honored to have been a part of this conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you. We uh, we appreciate that. Uh, so thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring. And you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. I want to thank Judge uh, Eric Menert, Professors Harold Prince and Dan Ranko, special guest law professor uh, Rebecca Sozi for being on the show today. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart and WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.